Ladies and gentlemen, step right up to see the greatest man in all Samaria. God has shined his light, his power, his effervescence down on this man since his very birth. He's here to amaze. He's here to bewilder. He's here to confound and confuse the greatest minds of our day. He's conquered Jerusalem with his amazing powers, his feats. And now he's back here in Samaria for this week only to dazzle you with his gifts and abilities. Who is this man, you might say? Who is this man that I'm talking about? Why, it's Simon the Magician. I know, it's kind of cheesy. I want to get you in the right frame of mind as we approach this text this morning. Just to give you a little bit of background, uh, the gospel of Jesus Christ is taking off. Uh, because of the persecution going on in Jerusalem in the book of Acts, because of the stoning of Stephen, people, Christians, except for the apostles, they're staying in Jerusalem, but Christians are beginning to scatter. And they're making their way into Samaria just as Jesus said they would. They're bearing witness in Samaria. And here we see an episode today where uh, the, the followers of Jesus, as they go out to preach the word, are... They're, they're typically following this pattern where they go out, they preach the word, people come to know Jesus, they get baptized, and everything's going great. Everything's going fine. Everything's going smoothly until today. And they hit their first hiccup. But this hiccup is very meaningful for us today, and it helps explain so much about what we see in the church if we're not careful. And so we're going to be looking today at Simon the Magician. The big question we're going to deal with today is this. What does the account of Simon the Magician teach us about the true nature of salvation? I call this sermon Mission Misfire. I'm not saying that the mission is failing, but here we see a little bump in the road, a little hiccup, but it's a very important hiccup. It's a very important bump. It teaches us a great deal about what's going on and about what's going on not even back then, not only back then, but today. I divided this passage up into four sections and so let's just get into the first one the, the first is that we see problem number one which is what what attracts people naturally as we go about in this world what do we see what are the trends that we see the patterns that we see how are people attracted to a movement or anything for that matter let's get into the text verse nine but there was a man named simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of samaria saying that he himself was someone great, somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him for a long time because he had amazed them with his magic. Now, let's just stop right there. Depending on the English translation of the Bible that you have, you might have Simon Magnus as the person, uh, Magnus is just a transliteration of the Greek word. So the Greek word, if you say it in English, sounds. Or if you say it with our, if you say it out loud, it sounds like Magnus. So they just wrote Magnus. You spelled that out. Or in the ESV, it's Simon the magician. Or in the King James, it's Simon the sorcerer. I like that one, Simon the sorcerer. Anyway, Simon was known in the region for all of his magic. And, you know, I think we could probably name the names of a few magicians that are popular in the culture today, right? Or even from days gone by in our culture. These are people that 
know how to entertain. They can dazzle, they can amaze, they can do what looked like, to our eyes, stunts that should not be able to be done in the physical universe that we exist in. But we know, right? We know that there's a secret, something that we don't see, a trap door, a hidden switch, uh, a sleight of hand that's just not apparent to us. We missed it. But we know these guys aren't bending the rules of physics, that they're actually doing some sort of trick, right? We know that. Maybe they didn't know that back then. I don't know. Whatever the case is, uh, Simon had their attention. Now, as I read the text, I also want to make another observation. It says that uh, this man named Simon, who previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, that's the region that he lives in, uh, saying that he himself is some, somebody great. Have you ever noticed what magicians call themselves? They call themselves the great Houdini, the amazing Jonathan, or, <laughs> or a whole host of other uh, you know, uh, adjectives to describe their wonder, their greatness, the, you know, somebody the fantastic or something like this. So it, it's interesting that uh, th- times haven't really changed since the Bible was written. Now, we've already, we're already starting to see a problem here, right? Simon is calling himself the great. People are referring to him as the great one, right? This man is the power of God and is called great. This man is the power of God that is called great. This man, they're saying, is the power of God that is called great. Already see a problem. Why do we see a problem? Because Paul wrote in uh, Romans 1.16, I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. Now, I want you to hold this in your mind because I'm going to come back to this. Uh, I'm going to come back to this in a bit. There seems to be already the, the writer here, Luke, is painting a contrast or is bringing to our attention that this man is putting him out there. He, sa- he says of, of himself, he's great. And that's the community is saying, this man is the power of God that is great. That's not accurate, right? That is not accurate. Now, again, I think when we think about a magician like Houdini or, you know, David Blaine or somebody like that, we know that in saying they're great, we're talking about their greatness in terms of their prowess of fooling us, right? Uh, Not that they're on par with God, but uh, this is going to come back in a bit. It's also interesting that he called himself great because... Oh, I'll just tell you a story. In 1715, Louis, uh, King Louis XIV died. He was of France. He died after a reign of 72 years. I'm coming up on 10 years at this church. Not that I'm a, a king or reign over anything, but to be in leadership for 72 years, man, that's a lot. But he called himself Louis the Great, right? He called himself Louis the Great and was the monarch of, he was the monarch who coined the famous statement, I am the state. I am the state. Anyway, his court was the most magnificent in all of Europe, and at his funeral, his funeral was equally spectacular. As his body lay in state in a golden coffin, orders were given that the cathedral should be very dimly lit with a special candle set above the coffin to dramatize his greatness. And at the memorial, as thousands waited in hushed silence, the then bishop Jean-Baptiste Massillon, 
began to speak. And as he spoke, he slowly reached down and extinguished that candle and said, only God is great. Wonderful, wonderful. Maslin, Ohio, by the way, is named after Jean-Baptiste Maslin. His wife, the, the founder's wife, requested that they called the town by that name. Only God is great. What we have to understand about this first, this first section, what we have to understand is that in the day that we're living in now, just as the time that they were living in back then, what attracts people naturally is skill, prowess, ability. In our culture today, I would argue that people are attracted to attractive people, be they men or women. Uh, people who uh, have the gift of rhetoric, right? People that can speak eloquently or make a logical argument or whatever. People are naturally attracted to talent, ability, athletic ability. Attracts all kinds of fans to the sports field, to the court side, to see folks play basketball or hit the baseball or whatever. These are what people are attracted to. Don't believe me? Take your Bible and go back to 1 Samuel chapter 8. 1 Samuel chapter 8. The people of Israel were living at a time where God was their ruler. God was their king. And God was going before them and fighting against their enemies and allowing them to have victories and, and all these things. But in chapter 8, 1 Samuel chapter 8 verse 4, the elders of Israel got together. And they came to Samuel at Ramah and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. But this thing displeased Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord, and the Lord said to Samuel, Obey the voice of the people that they say to you, of all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, Samuel, but they have rejected me from being the king over them according to all the deeds that they, that they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. Now then, obey their voice, only you shall solemnly warn them and show them the ways of the king who shall reign over them. And then Samuel proceeds to stand in front of the people and say, look, if you make someone your king, they're going to do all this stuff to make their kingdom look great. And he goes on to enumerate those things, right? Uh, these will be the way of the king that reigns over you. Verse 11, he will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. And he will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to all of his officials and to his servants. And he will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to his work. He goes on to say that. And then in the very next chapter, in chapter 9 of 1 Samuel, God gives them a king. And he gives them the king that they deserve. Saul. Look at his description. Chapter 9, verse 1, there was a man of Benjamin whose name was Kish, the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, 
the son of Bacorath, the son of Aphiah, a Benjamite, a man of wealth, a man of wealth, a man of wealth. And he had a son whose name was Saul, a handsome young man. Does any of this sound familiar? Does any of this ring true to what we're going through today? What attracts attention to people? A rich, well-connected, handsome young man, right? There was not a man among the people of Israel more handsome than he. From his shoulders upward, he was taller than any of the people. He was handsome, he was rich, he was connected, he was tall. Why are you laughing? I'm not rich, not well-connected, not even handsome, for heaven's sakes. I got tall going for me, but, you know, that's about it. Just makes it harder to find pants, people. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> anyway, this is, the, this is the type of person that the people would follow as king. He's tall, he's handsome, he's young, he's well-connected. We see all throughout the scripture of people being attracted, people being attracted to folks who had accomplishments, like Simon the sorcerer who had good looks, right? Esther was put into the position she was put in because of her beauty, right? We see all these things. This is what folks seek after naturally. And we just have to realize that. Now let's contrast that with the next section. What, pe what attracts people spiritually? So this is solution one. What attracts people spiritually? Verse 12, back to Acts chapter 8, verse 12. But when they believed Philip, okay, Philip was in the region, Philip the evangelist was in the region of Samaria, spreading the word about Jesus. But when they believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Let's pause right there. Let's just remember, recall to our memory, that when he's preaching the name of Jesus Christ, he's not just preaching Jesus Christ like his name, the name of Jesus Christ is everything Jesus is about. All that he taught, all that he stood for, his finished work on the cross, dying for our sins, his resurrection from the dead, his ascension into heaven. All of that is encapsulated in that phrase that he was preaching the good news about the kingdom of God, about the name of Jesus Christ. They were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed after being baptized. He continued with Philip and seeing signs and miracles... He was amazed. The amazing Simon the magician is now amazed. Philip was doing signs and wonders. Now, let's just take a pause, take a step back from the scripture. Let's just, let's just think about this for a minute. Simon was doing signs and wonders, performing magical things to emphasize who? He, called, he put himself out there as being a great man. And he was not upset at all when other people said, this is the power of God, who is great. Philip, the evangelist, is performing signs and wonders in conjunction with his message about Jesus Christ to point the, to point the way to emphasize who? Jesus, right? Huge difference, okay? Huge difference in someone taking their talents, their abilities, uh, that which God has given them and using them to accentuate, to, to put out, uh, to emphasize me, 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 versus someone who's given their, takes their talents, their abilities, that which God has given them to point the, the arrow to Jesus. 
Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip, and seeing the signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, when the apostles at Jerusalem, that's where they were, heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. They sent an envoy, Peter and John, two apostles, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. This is one of the most curious things about this text. How is it that the normal mode of operation is somebody trusts Jesus Christ as their Savior and they receive the Holy Spirit, but these folks in Samaria, they trusted Jesus as their Savior, they even got baptized, and they had not yet received the Holy Spirit. How is that possible? It's curious. We'll get into it. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, this is uh, Peter and John, and they received the Holy Spirit. What attracts people spiritually? Okay, let's go back to point one and let's try to draw a contrast here. In the world that we live in today, where people are so very attracted to attractive people, talented people, people who can perform magic like Simon the Magician, those type of people, where we as normal, normal people may be attracted to want to follow them, maybe even telling ourselves, well, the reason they have all this talent, the reason they have all this ability, the reason is because God has put a special anointing on them that we don't have. He's given them special things that we don't have. And so let's follow them. That's kind of how the way world works today. And so we can, we can allow ourselves to think that there are those that, that have been blessed by God and have a special anointing, we should follow them, and then there's all the rest of us schlubs over here, right? This is a very worldly way of thinking, and I would argue from this text that this is false. Because what's going on here? Philip is coming into Samaria and preaching the good news of the kingdom of God. That God loves each and every one of us so much, each and every one of them so much, that he sent his only son Jesus to die on the cross to pay for their sins. And that Jesus has a role and a responsibility in this kingdom of priests that he's building for each and every one of us. In other words, God has outfitted you, outfitted you, outfitted every single one of us with meaningful gifts, talents to be used for the kingdom. And so the, there is, the, God's economy is not, there are certain ones that are especially anointed. God's economy is, is that everyone who comes to Christ is amazing. Not because they're amazing, but because God is amazing and does amazing things. Look at your Bibles, the history of God working in the lives of people. Who does he use? The Gideons. The guys who are, the guy like Gideon who is so fearful of the Midianites that he's thrashing his wheat in a wine press. If you know anything about thrashing wheat, you don't do it in a wine press. A wine press is enclosed. You need air blowing through there to get rid of the chaff. He's thrashing his wheat in his wine press because he's so fearful of the Midianites. That's the guy that God puts into service. Rahab the prostitute. That's the woman that God chooses and calls into service. And when she responds in faith, he puts her in the very line of Christ. Right? It's, 
it's David, not the tall, handsome, you know, rich, well-connected guy like Saul that he makes the best king that Israel ever had, but a shepherd's son, right? A shepherd, the youngest of the lot, mind you, a little boy who had enough faith to pick up some rocks and a sling and go slay a giant. We think about this life all wrong, and this text is evidence of it. The, the disciples that God, that God chose to make his apostles, these were mostly fishermen, average workaday guys. These weren't the Harvard graduates. These weren't the elite of the elite, brain power wise. God has a role for each one of us in his kingdom. And he's building that kingdom with each and every one of us. You want evidence of it from the text? Here we go. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. And then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. This is weird. Why did that happen? Here's my best understanding of Scripture. I'm, I'm going to try to say this. I'm going to try to say this right. You've got to look at the history between Judea and Samaria. They hated each other. The Judea, the Samarians, the, the Samaritans, Samaritans had intermarried. They were Jews who had intermarried with other people some non-God-fearing people, many non-God-fearing people. And so to the Judeans who had remained pure and remained, remained faithful to the idea that God had told them, what God had told them in his word about, that they should marry other Jews, other God-fearing people so that they could bring up their children in the nurture and the admonition of the Lord, they viewed the Samaritans as half-breeds, compromisers, filthy so much so that when they, when they traveled from Judea north to Galilee, sometimes they would cross the Jordan River and go up along the Jordan River so as not to have to pass through Samaria. That's how much they hated them. That's why it was a big deal that Jesus spoke to the woman at the well. So imagine, I just, just imagine, this is, this is somewhat speculation, but I think it makes a good argument. Imagine Philip the evangelist goes into Samaria, preaches the gospel, people come to Christ, they receive the Holy Spirit, they get baptized, and a, and a church is formed. Though that history between those two regions doesn't go away. So the danger, I think, would have been that you would have had a Christian church of Samaria and a Christian church of Judea, and they would never, ever see each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. You get me? So, this is what God does, and it's incredible. He's got Philip the evangelist. He's spreading the word in Samaria. People are coming to Christ. They're getting baptized, but nobody's receiving the Holy Spirit. So Peter and John, a couple of Jews, come, down, come up from Jerusalem, come up from the region of Judea, and they lay their hands on them, and they receive the Holy Spirit. Now, number one, that they're bridging a cultural gap that's huge, right? They're bridging a history behind them that's significant. And in doing so, they are, I believe, articulating what Ephesians chapter 4 starts out by saying. Listen to what 
Listen to what the Word of God says. I therefore, this is Ephesians 4, 1 and following, I therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Here it comes. There is one body. There's not a Judean body and a Samaritan body. There's one body of Christ. There is one spirit. Just as you were called to the hope that belongs to your call. One Lord. One faith. One baptism. One God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. God is not, it seems to me from this text that God is not building a kingdom that's segregated into different states. You know, the Judean church, the, 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 the Samaritan church, blah, blah. He's interested in building a group of people that transcends any borders or any past history that existed between two people groups and building a people that are unified in the following of Jesus Christ. That's what God is building here. Brothers and sisters, that is attractive. That is what gets the attention of a spiritually minded person. 1 Corinthians 12 talks all about uh, the body and how we need each other. And that some people are the eyes, some people are the hands, some people are the foot, whatever, the ear. You get the idea is that it takes... To the degree that we think about the church as you've got those that God has, and, and, I, and I, can I say this without getting fired? I hate TV preachers who say something along the lines of, I have a special anointing from God that you don't have. What? That's heresy. That's heresy. If you are a follower of Jesus Christ, you're just as anointed as I am. We're all, but we have different gifts. That's it. We have different gifts, different abilities, different callings to do different things within the church. But we're all part of that 1 Corinthians body of Christ. Yeah, well, it's, it's going to get worse before it gets better, folks. So here we go. Problem number two. Back to uh, Acts chapter 8. So you know what happened? The apostles have just laid their hands on them. They've received the Holy Spirit. Now here comes Simon. Remember, he has believed in the name of Jesus and he's been baptized. Now a lot of people are going to try to pick apart this passage and try to say, well, was Simon really converted or not? I don't think that's the emphasis here, but it's, it, it doesn't really answer the question. Church history tells us that Simon went on to practice Gnosticism, which, uh, spoiler alert, is not Christianity. Uh, but that's extra biblical stuff, and I don't, you know, I don't know how much we're going to trust that. Certainly, we see here that uh, that uh, Simon the sorcerer has some issues. Verse eighteen. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of hands of the apostles, laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give me this power also, that anyone on whom I lay my hands." may receive the Holy Spirit. You see what's going on here. He said, ah, that's a nice trick. I'm sure there's a secret to it. 
let me go into my wallet here. Why don't you show me how to do that? Why? Where is Simon's heart still at? I am great. I am called great. I am the power of God that is, that is great. No longer is his emphasis on no, his emphasis is definitely not on the body of Christ. Simon was in the business of shocking and amazing people, giving other people the gift of the Holy Spirit would do that. So he wanted to pay someone money thinking that he could acquire the ability to give the Holy Spirit. As I've said before, I think a good definition of saving faith is knowledge. There's things we have to know that are told, in the, told to us in the Bible. Assent, we have to believe that it's true. And trust, meaning that we have to choose to rest the weight of our lives on it. Meaning, how are we going to use our time? Well, what does the Word of God say? Let's, let me do that. How are we going to use our words with each other? Well, what does the Word of God say? Let me do it that way. How am I going to use my treasure on this earth? Well, what's, what's God say? Let me do that. That's, that's what it means by putting the weight of our lives. That's what trust is. Simon, here's a man who apparently has the knowledge, believes it to be true, and then at the, at the third stage, at the trust phase, decides, I'm going to, no, 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 I want this for my own personal gain. The natural person seeks for self, and that's exactly what Simon is doing. He seemingly has no interest in making the God making God, the God of the Bible, the one that we attribute greatness to, but instead wants to take this skill and drive a greater awareness of his own greatness. But there's the last point, and it's solution number two, and it's what the spiritual person seeks, what the spiritual person seeks. Now, you're going to scratch your head when I read this, but that's okay, I'll explain it. Verse 20, but Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And I just want to say that the Greek is way harsher than this. The, the ESV made this PG for you, okay? Maybe even G-rated, but uh, the, 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 uh, the, the original Greek is a lot harsher. Peter doesn't have kind words to say to Simon. May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing that you have said, nothing of what you have said may come, come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Again, that's a shocking statement that these Jews are now going village to village and preaching the gospel on their way back to Jerusalem. It's incredible. But what does the spiritual person seek? I think what, I think what my analysis of this passage is this. The spiritual person, the spiritually minded person is not going to tolerate someone calling themselves a Christian, even going through the routine of baptism and still maintaining a focus on self. 
That's not, that can't be tolerated in the church. And so the spiritual person is seeking to be part of a community, a part of a community that is all about Jesus Christ. Knowledge, assent, and trust. Trusting in who? Trusting in Jesus, what he has said, what, what he has commanded. And we're not going to deal with, we're not going to put up with, we're going to go through the biblical process, but we're not going to put up with a person like Simon who says, yeah, I know this stuff and I know it to be true, but what can I get out of it? The spiritual-minded person, after all, is mindful of the fact of what, what Peter is talking about in this passage. He says, For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. Deuteronomy 29, 18 says, Beware lest there be, any mo- be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go serve the gods of those serve the gods of those nations beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit lamentations 3:15 says he has filled me with bitterness he has sated me with wormwood when we as human beings set our minds to follow a path that is a path designed for my pleasure to to focus my life on me, me, me. We are setting ourselves up for the gall of bitterness and the bond of iniquity. The path, brothers and sisters, the pathway in this life, it's not going to be easy. I'm not a prosperity gospel preacher, so I'm not saying that if you do this, you're going to be healthy and wealthy or even live another day. I'm not saying that. The path that God has laid out for his people to follow, the path that is filled with joy and peace, is the path where we stop focusing on ourselves and we learn what it means to love God and love others as ourselves. That's what it means. To turn this thing that God has given us, the talents, the abilities, to turn it and to focus it on self-pleasure and self-fulfillment is a dead-end road filled with despair and agony. It is, in a sense, a prison. But we who are aware of Satan's devices understand that the pursuit of sin is a trap. Oh, it looks attractive. It looks good at first, and it can even feel good at first. The allure of the forbidden fruit is always there. By the way, this is what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve were given paradise. And they were told, just one thing, just one thing, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And along comes the crafty one who says, you won't die. God's just afraid that you're going to be like him. That's all it is. Who doesn't want to be like God? So she took and ate. She gave some to her husband and he ate. And the sin that we that just become normal operating procedure for us today, that the, the wickedness and the despair and the pain that we live in every day has been with us ever since. But God has given us a way to live that says no to that and says yes to Him 
And the the way we do that is to stop focusing on ourselves and start focusing on loving God and loving others. By the way, read the book of Judges. The book of Judges, God gave these people everything. He gave them victory. He gave them the promised land. He gave them everything. It just seems like they get a little bit of victory over their enemies and they go, oh, God, thank you so much. And then, you know, 10, 20, 40 years go by and the next thing you know, they're worshiping false gods and all this. So God graciously brings along a foreign enemy like the Midianites or the, the, the Philistines and, and oppresses them for a time so that it forces them to their knees and to cry out, oh, God, we need you. So God gives them a, a judge, a, a commander who leads, you know, vanquishes their enemies and gives them peace in the land again. And for a time, it's God, you're great. God, you're great. God, you're great. And then the next thing you know, it's like, where's that idol again? And how can I do for me, me, me? The things that God has given us, the Word of God, the Holy Spirit operating in our lives, the fellowship in the congregation, these things God has given us not to get, make our lives boring or, oh my goodness, i got to go to church on Sunday, but if you will really, really plug in here, plug into this Bible that God has given you and read it, you will learn how to set the how to, to to establish your life in such a way to love God and love others and to be free from this nastiness of self that Simon was so viciously caught up in. That is the way of Jesus Christ. He demonstrated it by himself being the perfect spotless Lamb of God and, le- and yet laying his life down to honor God. And for us. So let's do that. Let's spend our days honoring God and serving one another. You know, I find that when I have the opportunity to serve one of you, not only, not only does it make me feel good, it wears me out so I sleep well at night. And, and at the end of the day, when I'm exhausted and I haven't had time to take care of myself, you know, do what I want to do, binge watch a TV show or something like that or, or whatever. It's like, praise the Lord, you know? Because I know myself well enough that if I'm not part of a church and I'm not growing in my faith, that I'm just going to turn in on myself and seek my own dang pleasure. Here, here's the big answer to the question. Saving faith is about knowledge, assent, and trust, not knowledge, assent, and lust. I'm not talking about sexual lust specifically. I'm talking about lust in general. That desire to get for me, for my pleasure, for my glory. Saving faith is not about that. It's not about knowledge, assent, and lust. It's about knowledge, assent, and trust. Trusting who? Trusting Jesus, his name, all that he said, all that he's commanded, all that he stands for. All right, here's some things to prick your conscience maybe a little bit before we go and have a nice Father's Day here. Number one, where do you direct your attention? Are you the type of person that says, there, there's the man that God has anointed. Let's go follow him or her. There they are. Or are you the type of person that says, okay, I see that person up there on the national scene. I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to follow him. I'm not going to let myself get distracted. I'm going to follow Jesus. How will you develop discernment to know these things? Well, I would argue that it's 
by doing the things that we talk about all the time. Read your Bible. Pray. Attend church. Don't just attend. Plug in. Get into a life group. Uh, Get into a situation where you have to put yourself out to serve someone else for their good. And you will learn the way of discernment. You'll take off the blinders that Simon apparently had on. And then finally, just meditate on Matthew 6.33. And you know what it is, but I'll remind you. Matthew 6.33, seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And all these things will be added to you. And, and I, listen, this is probably going to get me in trouble. I'm going to say it. All, the th- all these things that will be added to you, you probably have something in your mind. I don't know, a Maserati big house, fat wallet, I don't know. I would argue that as you seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, the all these things changes a lot. They're the things that truly satisfy. Relationships. Seeing people get baptized. Seeing folks come to Christ. A deeper relationship with the ones that you love. These are the things that can't be bought with money. Father, forgive us for the time when we've looked to someone out there who was doing something great and and said, there's the one that the Lord has anointed. When you've given us your son, Jesus Christ, he is the Messiah, the chosen one, the anointed one. He did come to this earth and lay down his life for our sins. He is our perfect spotless lamb, our wonderful example. Let us follow his ways. Let us each use our gifts and talents, the ones that you've given us, to love you and to love others with everything that we've got for your glory, for our good. In Jesus' name, amen.